Hey everyone, I'm Chris Lesniak. And I'm Rob Beyer. And this is the Debate Math Podcast. Debating mathy topics and mathy pedagogy with mathy people just like you. Let's get into this month's debate. Welcome everyone to the season two finale. And just like last season, we wanted to end the year by bringing together a few of our guests from the past debates this year for a roundtable to reflect on the past and also engage in a discussion around the question, how do we bring joy to math class? In Dr. Gordy Muhammad's books, Cultivating Genius and Unearthing Joy, she discusses five pursuits for teaching and learning, with one of them being joy. With politics around education and teachers are so often turning turn negative uh, in the news, we wanted to talk more about joy with our guests. We hope it will lead to an enlightening discussion with our group today. Well, let's not waste any time and get to our guests. So our first guest, returning from two debates this season, episodes 14 and 22, the debater who wants us to ditch everything, Algebra 2, Geometry. Uh, he is a former New York City public school teacher, an MFA master teacher, a Fund for Teachers Fellowship Grant recipient, who studied realistic math education at the Freudenthal Institute in Utrecht, Netherlands. It's Kit Golan. Hi, Kit. Hi, Chris. Hi, Rob. Good to be back. Yeah, welcome back. Glad to have you here. Can you remind us where you are and what your current role is? Yeah, I'm currently in Cambridge, Massachusetts at Lesley University's Center for Math Achievement. And I work with districts all over the state to improve their math instruction. Awesome. And I want to throw back to your debates earlier this year. You, again, you wanted us to ditch geometry, ditch algebra too. I'm just curious, how has your thinking changed or has it since those debates? Ditch it all. <laughs> um, I think math, you know, needs an update. And I think that we truncate it into those little categories. And at the end of our debates, it really sounded like my opponents had kind of the same opinion as me. It was just, we looked at it in a different way. So... <laughs> So it sounds like you think you won the debate. Okay. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Thank you. Also returning from two debates this season, episodes 14 and 22, is someone who has taught and inspired educators and children for over 20 years. He's an educational consultant, the director of education at the not-for-profit Five Cycle. He holds a PhD in mathematics education from Columbia University, and he loves dancing, photography, and nerdy games. It's Phil DeTerry. Hi, Phil. Hey everyone, thanks so much for having me back on the cast again. A lot of fun last time. Yeah, absolutely. That's why you're back. Um, could you remind us where you are and what your current role is? Uh, yeah, I'm currently in my home office in Brooklyn. And uh, as you mentioned, I'm the director of education at a not-for-profit, focusing on teaching financial literacy and mathematics. And I'm also the owner of an educational consulting company, Detroit Consulting, where I provide professional development, guidance, academic coaching, and other services to school districts, schools, administrators, teachers, parents, and organizations. Now, you were on two debates where you wanted to keep forces. Has your thinking changed at all since then? So I think that the debate was very productive. And I felt like at the end of the debate, everyone had kind of come around to my opinion. Uh, you know, I feel like it was just a very productive conversation. Even though we were taking it from slightly different sides, I feel like we all kind of came around. It sounds like both sides think they won. Well, if you, you'll have to go back and watch the debate to see why. I mean, both sides did win. We were all winners that night, clearly. Both those nights. I like that answer. All right, moving on. Returning from episode 17, 
is an educator who is proud to have engaged in teaching and learning mathematics with pre-K through PhD students and educators in multiple countries over the years, and who is pretty good with sports and music trivia. It's Farshid Safi. Farshid. Hi, how are you? Good. Glad to have you back. And can you remind us where you are and what your current role is? Sure. Glad to be with you. I am in Orlando, Florida, and uh, I'm a associate professor of K-12 mathematics uh, education at the University of Central Florida. And um, I have the pleasure of uh, learning with and from future elementary, middle school, high school, master's level students and PhD students uh, throughout uh, our region. And um, I'm also the secondary education program coordinator. So I get to actively try to de-silo these artificial boundaries that exist between content areas. Love it. All right. And your debate was about pacing guides. I'm curious what your thoughts are on pacing guides now compared to then. Well, I think I always uh, learn through listening. And I think uh, through that, um, similar to what Kit mentioned, I think we realize that we each uh, believe in similar things and maybe it's what's foreground and what's backgrounded. And so potentially having a roadmap that is flexible and intentional is crucial. Uh, whereas having no roadmap potentially ends up uh, leading some of us to wander uh, aimlessly. And so I, I feel like, you know, we were pretty convincing, but we'll let that, uh, we'll let our listeners decide that. Very good. All right. Here from episode 18, we have a middle and high school teacher of 23 years, a Desmos fellow, the Amplify professional learning specialist, and a Desmos certified presenter. Also a once diehard couch potato who has turned into a workout fanatic. Welcome back, Kathy Henderson. Hi, Kathy. Hi, y'all. It is so exciting to be back. Thank you for having me. Can you remind us uh, where you are and what your current role is? Um, I'm currently teaching sixth grade math at an independent school in Berkeley, California. So I'm just east of San Francisco. I'm also in my free time um, helping out with Desmos Classroom and Desmos uh, 6 through A1 presentation. So here we go again, non-sponsored by Desmos. Um, also, during your, <laughs> during your uh, debate, you were debating four paper assessments. Has anything changed since then? That debate had me think about that gray area in between how can I balance electronic assessments and paper assessments and still make sure I reach all of my students and understand where they are in their learning journey. So um, currently, I just gave a summative assessment on paper. But I also had students write reflections digitally. And so I, I think the other side brought me into the middle a little bit during that debate. Although don't tell them that, Patricia. We still won. We won't tell Eli. Don't worry. <laughs> so also returning from episode 18, we have army wife, boy mom, an experienced math educator who started college as a fine art major, thinking she would paint her way through the world. And who says food is her love language? It's Patricia Vandenberg. Hi, Patricia. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me on again. This is really exciting. Yeah, glad to have you back. And remind us where you are and what your current role is. So I am a Southern California girl in Meridian, Idaho. And I have the honor of serving as the math curriculum coordinator for the largest school district in Idaho, the West Ada School District. Um, and I have the dream job of overseeing K-12 math curriculum and instruction for our district. Oh, exciting. And then on your debate, you were teammates with Kathy, are also arguing for paper assessments. 
What are your thoughts now about assessments and different styles of, of offering them? What I loved about our debate is I think that it really um, shared what was important about assessments. We really came to an agreement of like, what is the purpose of assessments and what are they trying to do? So when we think about whether it's paper or digital, if it serves that purpose, um, then it's definitely valid. There's definitely a ton of paper assessments out there that are crap. There's a lot of digital assessments out there that don't work well either. But really, when it meets the target of what a pur- the purpose of an assessment should be, um, I think we came to an agreement then that is a valid um, a valid assessment. But definitely, Kathy, I agree with you. Um, paper all the way. If I had to choose between one or the other, I'm still going with paper. Um, so, And we definitely won that debate. <laughs> of course, of course. And last but not least, uh, who is debuting in our episode 20 as an educator, an ed tech consultant, speaker, traveler, and founder of the new nonprofit Compo Creativo, it's Ed Campos. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thank you for having me back. I'm really excited to see some familiar faces and uh, get to know some new uh, amazing people. Uh, hey, can you remind us where you are and uh, what your current role is? Uh, so I live in Central California, and I work for Kings County Office of Education for the most part uh, out of uh, Lemoore, California. I'm a consultant for them. Wearing a lot of hats, math, ed tech, computer science, hip hop. Uh, so it's a lot of things I love. I figure it's like, I'm also a self-proclaimed charcuterandero. It's a word I made up. I'm a charcuterie fanatic who likes to heal through meats, cheeses, fruits, and snackable uh, food food trays. And so I like to, so, uh, my life is just a charcuterie of all the things I love. A little bit of math, a little bit of tech, a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of a lot of amazing people. So, Oh, and I... Hearing you talk about these things uh, reminds me about your debate and how at the end of it, I, was like, I want to be a student in your class so bad uh, because you were talking about advice for teachers using technology. Uh, how was your understanding changed since then? Or have, have you pivoted or have you added new layers in it at all? To be honest, I forgot what I said, uh, but I'm <laughs> sure it was great because I speak from the cuff and from the heart. Uh, my advice is, you know, use, uh, if it's new, try one new thing. If it doesn't work, don't use it again. You know, I think we're all scientists. We're all, we're all lab scientists in our own environments and we all have unique personalities. So it's like, we try things on, uh, we see what works. We, you know, and I think I, I know I said that the best technology to just use is a Bluetooth speaker and a, and a Spotify playlist and you keep the jams going. So. That's that's my number one priority. Very good. And with that, let's get into the debate. Prior to tonight's recording, uh, we asked all of you to ponder the question, how do we bring joy into math class? And we'd like to hear from each of you briefly. Uh, we're going to work backwards through the order we introduced you all in. So we're going to start with Ed Campos Jr. Ed, the floor is yours. I'm going to say more listening. First of all, but when I'm talking about listening, I want more administrator listening to math teachers because I feel like I would still be in the classroom uh, if I felt listened to. I feel like we need more we and less me, but not just we as the students, we as the administrators and listening to my expertise, the teacher's expertise is the mathematics uh, and more understanding there because I feel you can't give something that you don't have and it starts with teacher joy first before. If you don't love coming to your job, knowing that you love math and getting to do it, 
and knowing that people understand what you do, we're never going to be able to have that rub off on, on students. And I think that also comes with being authentically yourself and bringing like the most joy I started having is when I started having conversations about rap music with kids and talking about NWA and my students gave me the nickname straight out of compost. And I'm like, that's hilarious. And then we made stickers and they put them on their skateboards. And I was able to bring my whole self into the classroom. As soon as I stopped doing that and stopped pretending to be the teacher that I saw on, on TV, because I grew up watching them or some old teacher, I just started being myself. That's when I felt like my students felt like, okay, I could be like, like Mr. Compos is being himself. I think I'm allowed to be myself too. And I thought that's where the joy starts. Authent being authentic. Thanks, Ed. Uh, next, we will hear from Patricia. So I have this favorite quote that I have pinned in my office um, on my wall from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He's the French author of The Little Prince. And it reads, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And that is what I immediately thought of when you posed this question to us about how do we bring joy into math class. And so math class can turn very quickly into assigning tasks and doing work. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this struggle, we've lost sight of what we're doing and why we even care. And so when I think about how we bring joy to math class, it's about creating that longing to solve a problem with mathematics. And we bring joy by creating opportunities for people, whether it's students or adults or administrators. We create these opportunities for people to en engage in a way that lets them play and tinker with math, to use manipulative, to draw, to discuss, to collaborate. And we, we create joy when we find ways to honor all the different ways that we think about math, all the different ways that people approach a math problem, and even ultimately how they solve a math problem. And we bring joy when we remember that math is so much more than calculation. For me, it's a vehicle to teach problem solving and communication. And we bring joy when we help our students see that bigger picture, to see that utility, the utility of mathematics, and how all of math is so beautifully intertwined to solve problems that we actually care about. Wow. Yeah, that was powerful. Thank you very much. Uh, and now we're going to move to Kathy. Uh, Kathy, go ahead. How do you bring joy to math class? That's a tough one to follow, Patricia. Um, I feel that the purpose of math class is to not only teach critical a critical life skill, but also to cultivate that curiosity and joy. Um, to allow the students to see the world through this lens of which patterns and logic are all around them. And when I think about my classroom, think about the discussing and the debating right here and the cheers and the ahas that are occurring. Um, lots of questions from sixth graders and I hear lots of answers, but I also hear laughter. And I was thinking about like, how do I bring that joy? How do I bring in that laughter? Um, my students love fun prompts and they love the puzzles and the debate. Um, they know that their voices are valued and that they're held up. They know that their successes matter and that their mistakes can be embraced and appreciated as learning opportunities. Um, I want to believe that they know that I believe in them. And then I want them to belong and feel that they belong in my classroom. And I feel like all of this kind of converges together and allows them to feel safe and therefore provides them all these opportunities then to feel joy in a safe space. So I am hoping that I'm cultivating that joy and allowing them to kind of flourish in the America. Wonderful. Well said. And next, we're going to go to Farshid. How do you bring joy to math class? 
I listen to Kathy and Patricia and Ed, I think, and I say more of that. Um, I, I think bringing joy to mathematics, um, I would love for us to also uh, reframe that as bringing joy to people who engage with the world through mathematics and mathematical thinking, because it's about the people. It's about our students. It's about our communities. So throughout um, place and time, wondering about patterns, shapes, reasons, sequencing, logic, generalizations, isolated events, imagination, beauty, joy, um, art, symmetry, wonderings. These things have fascinated people throughout time and in every civilization. So how do we engage other people with other people, learn, communicate um, through mathematical thinking so that we can engage in sense-making and sharing perspectives and um, creating and conjecturing and analyzing and predicting all the things that once you've engaged in them, you know they're inherently mathematical, but they're also human endeavors. They're also human things that we do to make sense of the world around us. Um, but ultimately, so that through that analysis, through that thinking, how do we make our world and our communities better? and more just um, in a truly, not necessarily interdisciplinary way, but almost transdisciplinary, like not starting with math or science, but looking at phenomenon and then thinking about how do I make sense of things and mathematics being one of the crucial ones. Well said. And next up, we're going to go to Phil. Phil, the floor is yours. Thank you. And thank you. What everyone said is so fantastic. Um, it's hard to follow. Uh, I think, I think when Ed, when you spoke, I think you said something like what initially came to me. Uh, you know, I believe you have to really enjoy yourself genuinely while teaching, and your joy will just be contagious. So, like when I started teaching, I was usually a nervous wreck. I couldn't control my class. I was afraid of them. As time went on, I learned how to manage my class. I learned how to facilitate group work. I learned how to engage them in authentic real-world problem solving, and then things got better. Right, like I wasn't having fun yet, but my kids were having more fun. Uh, I I had assumed the role of a teacher character that wasn't really me. After hearing all sorts of terrible advice, like don't let them see you smile till September, or uh, you know till December, excuse me. Uh, and so I basically resolved to change. I realized I wasn't happy because I wasn't being myself. So in class, I started playing music whenever they were doing collaborative learning. I my attention getting ritual became stopping the music. Uh, I started letting my students be my friends on social media. I even accepted my students' invitation to be in their Call of Duty clan at one point. Um, and, you know, I was, I was still their teacher first, but I was totally myself. And I completely stopped putting up artificial walls that didn't need to be there. And the result at the time was very surprising to me. What happened was they saw me sharing authentically my love of music, my love of video games, my love of fashion and culture. And then math just became another thing that I genuinely loved and was sharing with them. And it had nothing to do with the particulars of how I changed. It had everything to do with my vibe and my approach. I was having fun. No matter who I talk to now, I always make clear that math and the act of teaching brings me genuine joy. And whenever I talk about teaching or math or whenever I'm running professional development, I make a point of thanking everyone and making sure that they all know that I am having fun because fun and joy is contagious in the classroom. And I think that's how we get there. Wow, thank you, Phil. Uh, lastly, well, Kit, we will hear from you. <laughs> wow, going last after all of that, I feel like 
I don't have much new to add. Everything that I have in my list of what brings joy, I've heard someone else say. Um, But I think one theme that I heard from all of us is like, we thought about what brings us joy outside of math class. And then how do we bring that into our math classes, right? Whether it's being able to be our whole selves, that's a necessity for being joyful. Um, I think another piece is we talked a little bit about like playing with our math. And I think play is so powerful, especially in young kids, but even in high schoolers, they like to play and they don't necessarily see enough play in math. So I think the more we can create like opportunities for students to explore things and see how far can my idea go and oh I feel puzzled about this thing and now I'm feeling curious about that the resolving of that puzzlement then sort of gives them some joy so for me I think it's all about the play wow thank you all so much um you've given us wow so much to think about and and I get all the the warm and fuzzies right now because like I'm like yes I guess you know, Kathy starts talking I'm like, yes. And Patricia's talking like, yes. And Ed and hip hop. And I, I love it all. And, and Farshid and, and Kit, like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm overwhelmed right now. Um, but I want to, I want to kind of tap into something uh, that Kit was just talking about. And that is, you know, why is joy so important in math class for students? A lot of us talk to, you know, more about finding it first within ourselves and, and being authentically us. Uh, which is all wonderful. But at, from a student perspective, when we're sitting in the seats of students, why is joy so important in math class? And uh, I will start with, uh, I think, Kathy. I'll start with Kathy. And then we'll just kind of work our way around. Unless, Kathy, you want to kick it over to somebody else, we can go somewhere else. Too. So I love others, but I can speak from a personal perspective that I learn better when I feel joy and I feel comfort. And I find that, especially being a middle school teacher, my middle school students come into sixth grade with all these preconceived notions of what they should be in math, how they are in math. And um, those experiences sometimes can lead to anxiousness and um, kind of these walls that prevent them to be the mathematicians they truly could be. And I feel like by helping them find joy in learning and the joy in fun in math class and enables them to truly find the ability that they have within them. I don't know if I just answered that properly, but I I just, I think that part of the joy is if they can find joy, they can learn. So. Well, and it's interesting you brought up the, like the, the middle school perspective. Phil, I'm going to come to you with the same question from a high school student perspective, uh, finding joy in math class. My initial reaction was like, why would we remove it from math class? Math is joyful. I have to like go through great efforts and put you in rows and yell at you when you don't do the right thing to make you not like it, basically, right? Um, so um, I, although I completely like, you know, Kathy, um, it's sometime in elementary school. I forgot where I read the research. It's Mark Saul told me it, that uh, going into elementary school, if you ask kids what's your favorite subject, math is the modal response. And leaving elementary school, if you ask kids what's your least favorite subject, math is the modal response. Um, and, and so, you know, I definitely am used to my students coming to math class with massive amounts of anxiety, lots of fixed mindsets, feeling like they have like, like almost like they have like post-traumatic stress disorder from math class. And, you know, when you're, 
I, I always like to think about the fact that like, when you're experiencing joy or gratitude, you cannot experience anxiety. And so I try to make my students experience and share the joy that made me want to teach math and become a math major. And then at the same time, um, you know, I always try to cultivate gratitude, which is like not exactly what you were asking, but I feel like those two things ameliorate the anxieties that they come to us with. And not every subject has that problem, right? Like that's not the case for everyone. Um, my, my, like my English teacher friends aren't always talking about how like the kids are like so afraid of English class and hate, they don't walk in going like, I hate, I hate speaking English, right? I hate communicating with people is not like something that kids usually say, but that is the challenge we face in math. So I think um, it's certainly like about anxiety and then also just like, why not? Like we definitely all enjoy it on some level. If we don't, we probably shouldn't be teaching math, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I feel like for, for the students in high school, you know, I feel like it's almost more important because it's the last chance we have to have them associate math with something joyful if they haven't already come to us like that. Um, and so I think it's just as important as it is in middle school for all the same reasons. And uh, the final person for this question, I'm going to spin the wheel over at the Rashid. You get to uh, answer the question, how, why, or why is joy so important in math class uh, for students? Joy is sort of nourishment for our soul. It's what not only um, fuels us, but it's also what keeps us human. And um, having that curiosity and having that purpose um, is critical. And I would say I wish every student had uh, opportunities to experience mathematics as joy. But the reality is by the time that we have opportunities to engage with them, that is not really up to us. So how do we relate um, their experiences, their interests to um, help the mathematical thinking bring purpose and sense-making to something of interest to them? And I think that actually produces joy. So we may not start with joy, we might start with relevance, and we might start with curiosity, but I think it it uh, it connects to joy and to nourishment. Hey, Ed, you want to jump in real quick? Yeah, I um, I just wanted to add. I think to yes to everything. I think like I think testing has robbed the joy for students. I'm just going to call it out. I think the sick addiction to testing culture that we have is what's robbed the joy of teaching math and of learning math. So I'm gonna I'm gonna diagnose it because. Not every other subject, like Philip mentioned, is tested as much and the teachers are scrutinized as much. And it's, it is traumatic. It's traumatic on math teachers. It's traumatic on the students. And I honestly feel like students are walking into a system with this, this you know, idea of what math is because it's been this huge, oppressive, traumatic experience their whole lives. So they're walking in dysregulated. You can't learn and have joy if you're nervous. I've learned about trauma-informed practices. I feel like math teachers, we need this. Like I've learned about restorative practices. I feel like math teachers, we need this. You know, we need to heal, uh, but we need to diagnose like what's caused the trauma and free up the creativity for teachers to teach math the way that we know that it can be taught in a beautiful visual way of discovery and playfulness and not have to just do that for 20 minutes a day. And then now we're back to having our thumbs pressed upon us. So I just have to 
I just have to call that out. I'm going to, yeah, that's testing anti-joy, not joy. It's almost like when you see a group of joyful kids or young adults um, having fun, sitting around and uh, breaking bread together and enjoying food and reducing that to reading nutrition facts together, right? That's what their mathematical experiences can be. And unfortunately, it takes the joy right out instead of thinking about community, socialization, wondering, imagination. So, Ed, thank you for breaking that up. And real quick, I want to add, you know, thinking about when I had my own kids being very little and the joy that they had in counting stairs, walking up and down stairs and uh, wanting to put things in, in patterns and uh, count how many red colors there were and blue colors and you know, stopping at a stop sign and pointing to the stop sign and yelling octagon and being super excited so that it was never stop sign. It was always octagon. Uh, so like those type of things, it's like, wow, they were, they love mathematics so much and then testing and things happen. Right. So that's, that's my little two cents. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to jump in here. I'm going to change the question just slightly, but I'm going to go to Kit first and then Patricia here because you haven't had a chance to join in. So, so along the same lines though, I just, I want to hand you a magic wand. And I want to know how will you bring more joy to math class? Like and getting rid of testing is along that lines, right? But what brings joy to you? And like, what would you change if you had like unlimited power? And Kit, you can start us off. I mean, if I had unlimited power, I'd give us more time and no tests. And I would let kids explore what they're interested in. Because like Rob was saying, you know, the way that those kids, when they're little, are like, oh, I want to count this. They're just... They decided to count it. I watched a five-year-old in a kindergarten class many years ago who was figuring out that like the thing still was eight, whether they were all lined up this way or they were lined up this way. And that was a novel thing for them. And, you know, there's this great essay by Eleanor Duckworth called The Having of Wonderful Ideas. And she really talks about giving kids that opportunity to explore and to ask their own questions and to like follow those questions. And to do that, you really need more time and less constraints. And I feel like in the same way that English classes, you get a little bit of choice about what you're going to read. I wish in math class, we got a little bit of choice about what we're going to solve. And Patricia, do you want to add in or if you had magic powers? Oh man, that's too much power, first of all. Um, but I, gosh, I was trying to think of what my response would be as everyone was talking, but I think that I'm going to say something kind of unpopular. And I, I agree that testing culture can definitely get out of hand. But I do appreciate that we have something to kind of calibrate and say this is what we're looking towards and we have a measure so I think if I had a magic wand, I would, I would make the measure better. I would make the thing that we're measuring by better because here's the thing. If there are students here in Idaho, I want them learning just as much as they're learning in, in central California. Like I don't want people learning different things. And then that, that inequity kind of spreads, right? Like I want that equity and like all of our students are learning really rich mathematics. So I agree, Kit, like. We need more time. Maybe we need to teach less really well. And then just to have a better measure so that that culture is not about 
looking at those test scores and being really oppressive and judging our teachers and our students based on that test score, but just saying like, here's the measure of where you are in your learning and we want more for you. We want better for you. I'm going to adjust my instruction because I want you to learn more and I want you to have the best experience. Um, so those are the things that I would want that, that I would want to change. Like I wouldn't want to take away the testing culture, which I know is a very unpopular opinion, but I want us to be able to measure how well are our students learning? How much are they learning? And do we need to do more for them? Um, I would change that. And then, yeah, maybe just do a little less because if we could do a little less, like I think about, um, I get to oversee K through 12 mathematics and I see what our elementary teachers are doing. And I look at the priority standards that we've selected for them to focus on. And it's a really like crisp, clean amount of math that they're trying to teach these kids over the course of a year. And it makes complete sense to me that elementary students are saying math is their favorite subject because they have time to unpack. How do I count to 10? I get to count to 10 in like 63 different ways in this class. And then we get to secondary and the number of standards that we need to cover, that amount of information that we need to get through. We aren't engaging with our students as we would in our elementary classes. Now we're just trying to pour pictures of water of information into their brains and they can't hold it all um and so if we could do a little less so that we could take the time to make it more meaningful that's what i would love to see i love all that i uh, we, we've had some episodes where guests have talked about alternative assessments and ways to make assessments better so listeners can go back and listen to those um i want to open the floor anyone else want to take the magic wand and do some things here let me go to phil and then and then ed i would like to yes and what patricia said because I, I love everything you said, Patricia, but I think if we have a magic wand, we can do better than testing, right? So like, what if we replace testing with observations? What if we replace testing with students do a multi-month project and send it into the state, right? Like now, I'm sure that I would rip that project apart and I would rip apart the assessment of that project and describe it as trash the year it was introduced. But if we have a magic wand, <laughs> right, like, like there's definitely problems with assessment because everyone knows that bad data is worse than no data. And I'm afraid that our current tests are essentially bad data for a lot of students. Um, and certainly for teachers when we start evaluating teachers. I have some laughable stories about the New York grading system for teachers. Um, but I, I definitely want to like uh, agree with and fully endorse the idea of like, I do want standards. I just want to really question, even without a magic wand, if state tests have to be the way we get there. Yes. Okay. And going to Ed? So if I had a magic wand, um, I would just call for a total rebranding of math. And I would not even call it math because math doesn't sound, it sound like a fun name that I want to go to. Like, I'll be honest. And it, it's way cooler than what it is, you know, and it's not leaping off the, not with AI that we live in in the, in the world that these kids are going to be growing up with. It would all be project-based because life is project-based. And I feel like it would, instead of the name, I don't know what it is, like patterns, problem solving and performing, because it's about recognizing beautiful patterns, solving problems. And those problems are going to change given that these kids are growing up with AI. And it's always about performing and learning to speak publicly. If I can get my math students to do that, they can solve the problems that they're going to be having in the future when they are our age. And I feel like that's our job. I also feel like my magic wand would include like I said, uh, restorative practices so everyone knows and trauma-informed practices so everybody knows how to heal and from this 
re- this the, the reason why we needed this rebranding and that everyone has culturally responsive practices weaved in to tap into the to assets of every one of the students and dig into the math uh, that everyone's culture and, and the ancestors and the wisdom, ancestral wisdom that you bring uh, with you to the table. Patricia, do you want to share a few more of your last minute ideas you're coming up with here? Yeah, so I was like, you know what? If we have a magic wand, add on to what Philip and Ed said, you know, like maybe some smaller class sizes would be awesome. Imagine the relationships that our teachers could really develop with their students. Like, I think when I look at elementary to secondary, these elementary teachers, they have their one set of students and they get to know them the whole year. Like they can tell when a student has an off day and then you get into the secondary space and they're pushing 150, 160, 170 students on their roster. And like, it's hard to keep track of that. So I would love for our teachers to have smaller class sizes and, you know, we could probably pay them more. Well, and I think that what you just said, Patricia, about smaller class sizes connects back to Phil's idea of shifting the testing paradigm to observations. It's a lot easier to remember my observations if I've got 30 kids total versus I have 170 kids. Did I even speak to every kid today? Maybe not. All right. Um, well, with my magic wand, I think I would want every student to uh, just zap into the matrix and see that math is literally all around you and everything is made from math. So then that way they can stop asking, when am I ever going to need to know this? Because it's literally all around you. And I just want them to see like, you know, the, all the green screen with all the numbers and everything. That's, that's what I imagine. Uh, all right. So my final question for, for this episode is if we are talking with parents, guardians, and families, uh, or speaking with, with teachers who want to share uh, with parents, guardians, and families, how can parents, guardians, families cultivate joy in math with their own children at home? Think elementary, think middle school, and maybe even some high school examples if we have them. Um, and Ed, if you don't mind, I can come to you first. And people are going to hate me, but I'm going to bring up my friend John Stevens, Table Talk Math. So, like, I know I just took, like, everybody's answer right there, but John, John's been doing this work. Like, John Stevens, <laughs> he's got the book. Table Talk Math, John has been doing this. He's got the book, to. He's got placemats for you to bring these conversations home. Uh, you know, I think there's a couple other websites. Yummy Math is a cool one. I like that has some relevant topical ways to engage in those resources. Uh, and just like, I think one thing too is like as us is we should plant the seed of like all the math that parents are doing, right? Like count the fractions and with the recipe. I know like this is not a fraction, but you got, that's a unit of measure from my grandma's hands. This little, this, you know, I don't know how much it is. It's just that much right there. I realized uh, there was a keynote for CMC Central one time and they were talking about all this math. I realized there's a hell of linear algebra in working in the fields. The incentives that you get paid for by boxes, by the number of grape boxes that you pick. My parents pick grapes in the fields and like to talk about that linear algebra, those equations that you can calculate how much your incentive is, you're added onto your paycheck with those incentives for how many boxes you load, like that's pretty amazing, right? Like, like, like you said, Rob, it's all around us, but we have to shine the light for, for our folks to help, uh, help them realize, yeah, we're all mathematicians, right? We all use this on a daily basis. Kathy? So I used to teach at a school that had a family math night where we brought families in with students. And um, 
we just shared the joy of math. We gave them options and different hands-on activities, different puzzles, and just seeing multi-generational families sitting around a table and just talking math, and we'd have our administrators come in. It, it allowed the parents to see what we were doing in the classroom and then take it home with them. Um, also, I, I always remind my students, adults, to please not tell their students that they were bad at math because that shuts down the joy immediately. Um, I ask my, the, the adults in my students' lives that share away at home maybe that they find interesting in using math in their daily lives, whether it's through cooking ed, a lot of my students love the cooking, or if they're at a restaurant and finding tips, silly little things like that are math in everyday life and they can find joy in it somewhere out and about in the world. So, and it's not, Patricia just dropped in the chat and I appreciate this, that that math gene does not exist. It's not hereditary. It's not generationally passed down. It, 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 everyone can do math. They're all math people. And I really, really hope to convey that to my families and the students will hear that. For she? It's, I mean, just like uh, my wonderful colleagues are mentioning, it's, it's so reductive to think about the mathematics that our parents, guardians, and caretakers um, potentially see mathematics as being. If mathematics is viewed as being calculation, if it's uh, performing some kind of a calculation that leaves a singular answer, that is less than 5% of what mathematics actually is. Uh, and it'll become even less and less with artificial intelligence, with other advances of technology, as it should. But it's it's almost like reducing storytelling and uh, watching stories and traditions and reducing it to letters without connections between them and contexts. If mathematical experiences for them haven't had context, relation, connection to traditions, and extensions of what their interests are, why should it be relevant? That mathematics shouldn't be relevant to that pocket. So instead of trying to convince people of what should be, perhaps all of us have been pointing at starts with listening and then starts with connecting from where they are as opposed to where we want to take them. Uh, Kit? Yeah. Um, there's so many things that I want to respond to. Um, I think some of the things that people have been talking about remind me of a mathematician's lament where he makes an analogy between like painting and music and imagine basically if music was mandatory K through 12, but all they got to do for those 12 years was write notes on the staff and they had to learn all of their quarter notes and their half notes, right? And all you ever did was notation and you never actually listened to music and you never actually played an instrument or sang. You would think that music was a horrible, horrible subject. That's what we've done to Matt, right? We've taken all of the beauty of what student ideas are about and we've narrowed it down to just, oh, here's some notation. I had some students today, actually, in the school I was working with who were solving equations in their heads, but be cut, right? And like, it was one step, two step equations. They weren't the most complicated, but we were like, oh no, you must solve it this way. You must show your steps this way. 
And that pulled the joy out from them of like, wait, I figured it out. I got the answer. Well, yeah, but no, I think we really need to change what it means to be good at math, not just for our students, but going back to your bigger question, Rob, for the parents as well, right? When the parents are emphasizing, oh yeah, it's about the answers and getting it right. Well, there's more ways to be good at math. Maybe you're good at visualizing or noticing patterns or asking questions or posing interesting questions, right? Or making really astute connections between things. There are lots of different ways to be good at math, but because of testing culture, right? We narrow in on just, can you get the right answer? And can you show it the right way? And math is about more than that. Absolutely, Phil. I definitely echo everything everyone has said so far. Um, really incredible, like really uh, feeling all the things they're saying. And it's like we're having a love fest in the chat. Um, <laughs> but I, I just, I guess I want to, it's a slightly different uh, direction with it, but it's very related to what you're all saying. Like, I've advocated a lot for at the high school level for mathematics to be a very applied course. By the time we're in high school, I feel like math, how do, why are kids asking if math is relevant to our lives at that point? Like, like, you know, I advocate for financial literacy to be taught like alongside algebra in concert with, and kids should never be asking, when am I going to use this in life? Because the relevance is apparent. So at the young, young age, when you have kids at home, what is relevant to them for me actually is games. So I think the thing you should do is play tons of games involving probability and like hypothetical deductive reasoning if you can. Yeah, here we go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Math games are bad drawings. Fantastic. There's a, there's a great book um, I really like also called Summer Camp uh, Math, Camp Math by Mark Saul, which is fantastic. Um, I, I, ran, uh, I ran a math circle for uh, first and second graders. I've also run math circles for, like, uh, for older kids. If you can get your kids involved in a math circle or if you can do those kinds of math with your kids, that's fantastic. Um, so I think just sort of more experiences with like dice and trying to anticipate will happen. And then I also think about um, some of the research on logic and reasoning. Uh, you know, I did my dissertation on proof and, and reasoning in the classroom. And I always found it really surprising that explicit instruction on logic does not appear to improve students' use of logic in proofwriting. But when teachers routinely use logic in the classroom, that does appear to influence students' ability to use logic when making arguments. And so when I think about like being at home, I think about being really explicit with your students, with your children, uh, whenever you're using logic or whenever something, whenever you can do something's going to happen. I know something I do is my son is that I always try to get him to anticipate what's going to happen next. It's not explicitly mathematical, but it quickly veers into math if you develop that habit. Um, so I know it's like a slightly different perspective than what we were saying, but like I'm trying to think if I'm a parent who's not a math teacher, I don't know how many of you are out there, but if I'm a parent who's not a math teacher, like, you know, some real practical stuff. Um, I think I think games is a, is a great place to go. Philip, I really love how you said that because as everyone was talking, I was thinking about we just had parent teacher conferences with my own kids, and um, reading seems to be like the thing that helped with reading, writing, spelling. The te my teachers are always telling me like, oh, just read, just read with them, read with them for twenty minutes, have them read to you, you read to them, listen to Audible, just read, and I just thought like. What is it in math? What is it in math that parents could just do that isn't something that is like, okay, yeah, pull out the textbook and, and 
do these review problems with them. I love I loved the idea of just play games with them. And I was thinking along the lines of just like asking questions. I do the same thing with my kids where I just ask them, oh, how did you come to that conclusion? Or why do you think that's the answer? Or what do you think will happen next? It's really playing those kinds of games where you're um, asking your kid to think logically or, you know, like do those calculations. So like, I wonder if that's what it is in math, you know, like when we say we want our students to be more successful in all of the ELA areas, we say read, um, is it play games in math? And do puzzles. I'm also thinking of just like listening to uh, Philip and Patricia and, and, and Kit, the idea that those interests differ from child to child, from student to student. So if a person, for instance, is interested in video games, then connect how long a platform is during a challenge or a boss level, and then say, you know, transformations are kind of like this. Scale factors are kind of like this. You know, if you're interested in um, storytelling or uh, movie making, right? Sequence matters. If you uh, flash the light first and then record, is that the same thing as recording and then putting the light on there? Composition of functions is kind of like that, right? So instead of leading with the math and then trying to find applications down the road when they're no longer interested, actually start with the relevance and the the worlds that matter, worlds plural intentionally, that matter to them. And then say, hmm, well, the way that we can actually generalize that and make sense of that is maybe through a sequencing, an order of operations, a composition, a transformation, a reflection, something like that. I love it. I'm going to jump in here. I I want to wrap things up here. And I had, this is such a great discussion. I want to be in all of your classes and just like sit and soak up your awesome teaching and your relationship building and, and community and belonging, all that stuff. Um, I just want to end with some like thoughts for teachers, like moving forward. Where do you see things going? What what it, What's your dream for teachers? What do you wish they would try one thing or something? Just like one last final piece. I'm going to start over with Phil here and kind of work my way around the group. And just what is your last kind of closing thoughts for teachers here as we bring this conversation to a close? Think about what your students are going to do in the real world and make sure your class is helping them there. That's my final thoughts, I think. You know, so whether that means teaching math in the context they're going to use it or using a pedagogical strategy that helps give them the soft skills that they're going to need in the workplace, like allowing them to work collaboratively. You know, um, there's... There's so much great stuff out there right now with, uh, you know, like things like, uh, I know a lot of teachers are excited about building thinking classrooms or uh, mathematical mindsets. There's like a lot of great stuff out there. Like read those books, try some things. Um, you know, there's a reason there's real through lines through all of these great books that all people are excited about, right? And so I think um, just go out there, check out the math Twitter biosphere. There's lots of amazing stuff out there. People have such great ideas, um, you know, follow all the people on this call <laughs> i think um that's that's been at least for me um i didn't in the beginning of my career connect so much with teachers and now that i'm in the later part of my career and i think back all the most influential moments have been connecting with fantastic educators in 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 these kind of venues and so um you know i really appreciate everyone on the call and tapping in to like amazing educators like the people on this call i think is the most thing you can do because then you're not just like getting a good fish for your class on a Tuesday. It's like you're learning how to fish. You're going to keep seeing, you're going to find the next cool book that's going to help make your class better. Well said. 
How about Kathy? What is your last thoughts or hopes for teachers? I would say allow yourself a day not to cover the curriculum. You know what? Have a game day with your student. Have a puzzle day. Pull out the board games from home and bring them into your classroom. I go to Mackinac's Love's blog and borrow a bunch of her freely shared puzzles. Um, I feel like I make the best connections with my students when I'm not covering that curriculum and I'm laughing with them and we're having fun. So um, feel free every once in a while just to laugh with your students but you don't have to cover the curriculum every single day. And, and Kathy's giving us all permission. <laughs> I am. I don't have that power. I wish I did. That's my magic wand, I guess. <laughs> nice. How about let me jump over to Ed. What are your final thoughts here? Hopes for teachers. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to take that baton from Kathy in this relay right here and say, yes, I don't know the most joyful problem I ever found in the tech in the textbook or the curriculum. So like seek outside of that for just a good problem to the juicy problem, a good visual problem. YouCubed has some good ones. Um, you know, the math equals love. I really love, um, it used to be called Mathalicious, but Citizen Math, super relevant. Kareem Kayanai has some really amazing, relevant um, math tasks there. Teach a math problem that you love. And then that joy, that joy will, will, will come like from your love of math. Show them what math is, which is basically what we have to do because it's not um, in our textbooks or curriculum yet. I'm waiting for Kathy's magic wand. I love the word yet. Let me jump over to Kit. What are your thoughts and your hopes for teachers? So, you know, I think a lot sometimes about the connections and the differences between math and ELA class because we're both the big tested subjects. But in ELA, when teachers ask their students to read a book, they ask their students to make connections to themselves, to other texts, and to the world as they read. I would say we could do the exact same in math. Right. So as you're solving the problem, how does this connect to other problems? How does this connect to yourself? How does this connect to the world? And the more that we cultivate that thinking in ourselves as teachers, the more we can cultivate that in our students. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, we do this in ELA class. We do it in math class. Same thing. So I think that's another way to help students see the relevance and the connections in math. Jumping over to Patricia for some final thoughts here. So I want to first acknowledge that teachers have a really hard job. It is, you know, they are working so hard and it is a very challenging profession. And oftentimes they don't feel supported. They're underpaid. They have large class sizes. And so I first want to acknowledge that, that like it is a really challenging job. And we are so grateful um, that you're sticking with it and that you're you're in the classroom working with our students. Um, and so I want to say that first. Um, but the second thing I want to say, really what I would want teachers to hear is that you need to believe in your students. You really need to believe in them. They can do hard things and you're going to help them get there. And I think when you frame your mind to understand that every single kid in that classroom is somebody's baby, is somebody's like best work. I think about when my kids are in school, like my kids are the most important thing to me. Like they are my pride and joy. That is someone's baby. And believing in every single one of your students is so important. Helping students build up their own self-efficacy in math um, is just so powerful. So just believe in them. 
Sometimes you might have to fake it till you make it. But your kids should know that they can do hard things, that they that they're capable. Um, and so just remember to really believe in your students. And Ed's gonna mic chop over there. <laughs> um, but let me jump over to Farshid for one last final thought here. I'm good with Ed's mic drop of Patricia. She's just phenomenal and that message and that passion is is spot on. Um the I guess the tangible thing that um would be to not allow content and context to be separated, not by curriculum, not by content area, not by people, and not by efforts to make um, math or ELA necessarily the, the king of all subjects. It's about human endeavors. It's about our world and whichever ways we can communicate and analyze. If communication to us means Language arts, phenomenal, but that's not uniquely linguistic. If analysis means mathematics, yes, but it's not uniquely mathematical. Uh, so whatever it takes for us to not allow um, content and context to be separated, for me, that happens through mathematical modeling. But that's just right. Wonderful. Thank you all. Oh, Ed, one last thought? Well, I just wanted to say this mic actually bought in my math class so that my students could drop it when they dropped some knowledge. And like, that was some joy right there. I'm like, if you could convince me and explain your reasoning, you can go to lunch like five minutes early. And they were like, what? And I was like, this is the best 20 bucks I ever spent. Cause if you drop this thing, it feels amazing. Like for 20 bucks, a couple of dents in the linoleum in the school campus will work it. Love that. And on that mic, we will end our, our discussion here. It was wonderful. Uh, I'm sitting here, my mind's spinning. I can't wait to like re-listen to this episode 15 times over. Uh, thank you all to uh, our guests for such deep thoughts. Uh, you've given us so much to be thinking about as we are ending our, uh, our second season here on Debate Math Podcast. And listening to all of you has filled me with joy. I hope our listeners feel the same way. And please go to our Twitter at Debate Math Pod to continue the discussion. Share how you bring joy to students. Share your reactions to this. Um, we love to hear it. And as we wrap up, Kit, where can listeners find you? On all of the social media as Mr. Kit Math. And Phil? On Twitter or X or LinkedIn, um, I'm at Phil Viteri. Uh, just my name, P-H-I-L-D-I-T-U-R-I. Uh, you can also find me at, uh, for consulting services at deterreconsulting.com. You can book me for speaking or professional development, other services. And if you're curious to learn more about a fantastic way to have a real world applied um, math class that sounds like what a lot of people were talking about today, you can check out phicycle.org, where we wrote a Algebra 2 course that teaches personal finance, uh, dealing with the opportunity cost of not having to have too many periods in the day. And we'll include all these links in the show notes. Uh, Farshid, where can listeners find you? Um, there are not too many Farshid Safis in the world that I'm aware of. So at Farshid Safi is not taken. That is me in lead. Uh, so whether you're interested in supporting teachers, pre-service, in-service, um, then I'm very much involved in that uh, at my, through my university. As well as if you're interested in professional learning, how do we learn and grow together? Uh, please connect with me. We've been doing that with school districts, with teachers all over U.S. and Canada. 
and a few uh, international destinations. We can do this, and our students deserve for us to support them in doing that. Love it. Kathy, where can listeners find you? Um, I'm on all the socials with Kathy Penn, K-A-T-H-Y-H-E-N. Patricia, where can listeners find you? I am on Twitter at VbergMath, um, and you can also catch me on my blog, PatriciaVandenberg.com. And with the final mic drop, Ed, where can listeners find you? I'm on all the socials as Ed Campos Jr. Uh, my website should be updated soon at CamposJr.com. Uh, my nonprofit is CampoCreativo.org. The first student award of my creativity grant is actually designing the art for my website right now. The 19-year-old Emilio Gonzalez from uh, Seattle, Washington area. So coming soon in about a week. Wonderful. And thank you all. Want to learn more about incorporating debate activities into your math classroom? Go to lozniak.com slash podcast to sign up for my mailing list and get your first set of example debate activities you could use with your students today. Go to lozniak.com slash podcast. Don't forget to reach out to us with comments and questions on debatemath.com or follow us on Twitter at debatemathpod and follow along with hashtag debatemathpod. Rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. Your feedback is super important to us. Well, that's all from us. Looking forward to debating with you more next episode. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.